Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, good morning, Portico. Man, give you guys one more hour of sleep and look at this place. I have an idea. Let's, let's do this again tonight. Just find out what happens tomorrow. I don't know. Let's just take and throw caution to the wind and go ahead. Set your clocks back another hour tomorrow. See what that does for us. If you're visiting today, so good to have you here. We're so glad that you're with us at Portico. Welcome those of you that are online. Be sure to say to our, hi to our online chat host, and they'll connect with you. And uh, here's what I do know. Every time we gather together, it's a great chance for us to lift up our hands, lift up our voices, praise God, but it's a chance to meet some new people. You've shaken hands, but do you know the name of the person you're seated next to? If you're married, I hope you can answer yes. If you're family and friends, I hope you can answer yes, but just in case not, just turn to your neighbor and go, hey, just for the remainder of the day, my name is, and just let them know who you are so you at least you know who each other is in the room. This is always good because when you move around in the room, they're going like, oh, I don't know who you are. All right, let's get our Bibles together. We're going to jump right in. We're in a brand new series today, and I'm very, very excited about where we're going. So take your Bibles, and we're going to go to the book of Exodus. If you're new to the Bible, that's an easy find. Genesis, Exodus. So it's the second book in. Really, really easy to connect with us. You can download our app, by the way, and that way you can follow along, take notes, fill them out, send them to yourself, have a record of this, and you can also follow the Bible readings in there, and we'd strongly encourage you to do that. I'm really excited about today because we're launching a brand new series, and I've been looking forward to this. And as we jump into the book of Exodus today, we're going to have a look at a new topic that's going to take us through for the next couple of weeks And we're going to experience what I believe is something that God's going to open our hearts to this whole area of our life that maybe we know a little bit about, but I'm not sure we know all that we could possibly know about this particular topic. Now, before I jump right in, you know that I'm a big proponent of interactive participatory worship, right? Okay. Thanks for the three of you that gave me the little vote and the one on the side. You know that I'm a big proponent of interactive church, right? There you go. All right. See, this is what I needed to know. Are you willing to try something today? All the visitors in the room are going, whoa, we picked the wrong church today, didn't we? Trust me, this is not going to hurt anybody. I need everybody's eyes on me. Easy to do. Here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, all I want you to do is take a breath. All right? One, two, three. Breathe in. And exhale. Now, for some of you, that's the most oxygen you've had in seven days. All right, let's do it again. One, two, three. Breathe in and exhale. You're going, really? That's what today's message is about? It is. Let's pray and go home. It's interesting, when I started to prepare for the series that we're looking at, the correlation between breathing and worshiping. Looked it up in a medical doctor, and I was looking at some of his background and research that he had done in this area, Dr. Weil. 
And he talked about this whole area of breathing. He said that for the majority of us, we actually don't breathe properly. We breathe improperly. We don't use our diaphragm, and therefore we don't gain the benefits of breathing the way that we should have. So the further I read into this, the more intrigued I was by it. But here's the statement that he made that really caught my attention. He said, most people do not know how to breathe so as to take full advantage of the nourishing, health-giving properties that comes with the act of breathing. See, breathing and worship are both voluntary and involuntary. And we'll get into that in a couple of weeks here. But when he made this statement, I want you to listen to it again. Most people do not know how to breathe so as to take full advantage of the nourishing, health-giving properties of the act of breathing. He just talked about the, the incredible intricacy of breathing and how it works with our body and how we were created to respond, to be fed by the way that we breathe. And then I thought, well, what would happen if I substituted one word? And it's the word worship. And if we took the word worship and we put it for the word breathe, listen to the statement. Most people do not know how to worship so as to take full advantage of the nourishing, health-giving properties of the act of worshiping. And I, oh man, did that ever nail it? Because I think for a lot of us, what we do when it comes to breathing is we take it for granted. It's that involuntary response that we have, there are moments that we might voluntarily change it up. We're swimming, we have to hold our breath, or we're going to take deeper breaths to control the rhythm of our life and bring stress and anxiety down. But for most of us, it's the involuntary response. And I got thinking, maybe, just maybe for a lot of us, that's what it is when it comes to worship. That worship is more assigned out into that involuntary area, and it's something we do, and it's a little mystical, and it's a little mysterious. But could it be that breathing is really, and worshiping is the way that God has wired us up, that we would worship in a way that would just fill our spirit and fill our life and fill our minds with spirit-inspired properties and spirit-inspired power? So here's a couple of questions. Do, Do I, do we really know how to worship? Is our worship deeply enriching, life-giving, and is it transformational? And do we understand what Jesus meant when he said that we would worship in spirit and in truth? And so over the next four weeks, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to look at things like awakened and transformed and alive. What do those words mean when it comes to this whole area of worship? What is worship? If God wired us up to be worshipers, then what does that look like in our everyday life? Not just when we come together in a room like this and it's great and it's beautiful and it's powerful. What does it look like, as Pastor Duane already mentioned, when the clouds are dark and gray and the storm is on the horizon and we go, and yet I'm still a worshiper. And then we're going to do something on Sunday, November 27th. What day? Awesome. Your memory recall is working. You've had caffeine and sleep. All right, Sunday, November 27th, we're going to have a day that I don't want you to miss. Now, listen carefully. If you're online and you live in the area, come and join us. That's the way to experience this. But on the 27th, we're changing everything up just a little bit because you know I do that every now and then. So we're going to change things up. And if you come just a little bit late, you're going to regret because you're going to have missed something. Now, now I noticed something. I noticed that we're, we're having a little bit of a slide about how quickly we get to church. You notice that, right? So I have a little concern for some of you because the rapture, I'm not sure what Jesus does about latecomers, but we'll figure that out. That's his area. But, but for me, for me, for church, I don't, I don't want you to miss the 27th. That's why I'm just saying, be here on time on the 27th. It's a day that you're going to love. It's going to do something that's going to change the way you experience worship, and we want you to be a part of that. So remember that date. Don't slide in late. You're going to miss right off the top. Well, we're going to jump in today because I want to talk to you about the awakening. What does it mean to be awakened to worship? And what are, what are the outcomes of worship when we engage it in the way that God wants us to? 
So we're going to jump into a text that's really familiar, and I had you turn there. It's Exodus chapter 3. Now, for many of us, this is familiar territory. This may be perhaps what is the most memorable story in all of the Bible. It's the story of the Exodus. Who has not heard about the Exodus? Even for those who are not biblically literate or maybe not even religious people, they've heard about this. Charlton Heston in the epic blockbuster, 1956, The Ten Commandments. And no, by the way, in case you're wondering, Charlton Heston is not Moses. He only played the part of Moses. But it has just entrenched into our social culture that we know this story. So the big level story is this. Israel was enslaved. They were mistreated. They cried out to God. God hears their anguish cry. He raises up a deliverer. His name is Moses. He's going to go in and rescue the Israelites. There's going to be power struggles. There's going to be plagues. There's going to be Passover. And then eventually there's going to be the promised land. So that's the big picture. It's a story worth reading. If you've never read it, get into the book of Exodus. It's a wonderful story to read. But in preparation for the series, and I was thinking about this whole act of worship, I was reading the book of Exodus, and I came across a text that I'd never really viewed it in this context before. And when I began to read the story, I I asked myself, why did God say that? You ever do that? You read a text, and you go, why did God say that? Why did God require that? What was God looking for in this moment? And it actually had to do with Moses and the Israelites more than it had to do with the Egyptians. Now, there's significant impact into Pharaoh's world here, So the text that I want to take you in is, this is long before any Israelite would ever set their foot outside of Egypt. There's this unique overlooked story I want to draw your attention to. Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. And we're going to read, follow along as I read it for you. So now God is speaking to Moses, and here's what he says. I want you to go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, and he said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the elders of Israel will listen to you, and then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. It's right there. I was reading that story. I've read this so many times. And I would like move right off into the rest of the story. And I was getting ready for the big power encounter. Moses and Pharaoh. And whose plague is going to outdo the other person? His magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, or is God and Moses going to win the story? You know, and I kind of raced through this. And then it was a sentence. If your Bibles are still open. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices. Not out to Mount Sinai. Not out to the promised land out to the wilderness. What was so compelling for God that before he would rescue Israel from Egypt, he would ask for Pharaoh's permission. Now think about this. He sends Moses to ask Pharaoh, hey, our people need a three-day leave of absence. Have you ever tried to get a personal day from work? You know what? You have to go through the paperwork to get out. So you go ask Pharaoh for a three-day leave of absence. In fact, take the leaders with you so that they're there. And all of you, even though you're his economic machine and you're making money for him and you're the ones that are the slaves, just go in and go, any chance we could have a three-day leave of absence to go worship? That begs a question. Why did God want Israel to go worship in the wilderness before all of the deliverance would take place? What was going on here? Now, We don't have time today, and and perhaps in a future series, we're already looking at a future series around this, we'll talk about how God worked with Pharaoh, the hardening of his heart, and how there's a graded process that he worked through. But it's the Israel part of the story that I want to focus in on. 
Because when I began to look at this, I realized something. God was inviting Israel to come into the expression and experience of worship. And there are some outcomes that take place when we begin to worship. You're going to take notes. I'll give you a few that you can take away. Talk about them with your growth groups, and we'll get deeper into this. Here's the first thing I want you to think about. Worship. Worship resets our perspective of God. That when we're invited into God's presence and we're invited to abandon the things that are circumstantial in our life, they're still there, but when we're invited to give our attention, our focus, our energy to God, it resets our perspective of God. Now, I'm going to stay really close to our text so that we can look at this and we'll bounce back and forth a little bit, and I, I just want you to kind of jump in with me. But if I could paraphrase the story... I want to jump into the conversation that's taken place between God and Moses. So God said to Moses, this is before he would go into, into uh, Egypt, he said, I want you to go back and I want you to have a conversation with the people. Now, if we could eavesdrop, it might sound a little bit something like this. Moses speaking, okay, God, so just to be clear, you want me to go back to Egypt, back to the place where I killed an Egyptian and where the Israelites rejected me the first time. And God goes, yeah, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go back. All right. And then you want me to go speak to the leaders of Israel and convince the leaders, the ones that are being mistreated and harsh brutality that's taking place. You know, remember, they're killing the infant kids, the boys. You want me to speak to the leaders and tell the leaders, let's go talk to Pharaoh and ask for a three-day leave of absence. Like, that's not going to be a problem. And he goes, that's what I want you to do. And he goes, okay. And just so I'm clear, God, you want me to go to them and say, by the way, God's telling me to tell you all of this. That's what you're asking me. And God's basically saying to Moses, that's it. Not a hard conversation here. You've got it. And so when you start to put all of this in context, immediately Moses identifies what's a very significant problem, that if they don't address this, There's going to be an issue, and he raises it with God. So in your Bibles, I just want you to follow along. I've got to print it in your notes. We'll put it on the screen for you. A a problem surfaces, and it's found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Look what Moses says to God. So verse 13, Moses said to God, now look at the word, suppose. Now there's a reluctant leader if you've ever seen one. Have you ever said that to God? Just suppose I do what you say. Well, here's Moses. Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Do do you find that intriguing at all? Because Moses was born a Hebrew. He was raised in Egypt, but he was aware of who the Hebrew God was. And he's saying to God, we got a little problem here. You want me to go back to the leaders of Israel and you want me to ask them to go in before Pharaoh, and you want me to tell them that you're speaking to me, and here's what I know they're going to ask me. They're going to go, who is this God? What is his name? Now, see, in our Western understanding, our Western mindset, our Western language, what we're thinking about is, well, just tell them it's Yahweh. That's the name. That's God's name. That's the name he was going by right here. So why wouldn't you say it was Yahweh? But the nuance of the language is much deeper and a little more intricate than what we first read. What they're really asking is not the question, who is his name? Because we can all say, we know who God is. They're asking a much different question. The question, the essence of the question they were going to ask him, who is this God that it's going to make any difference in our circumstances? You go, why? Remember the time that they've been in Egypt. 
Remember the circumstances of which they're living in Egypt. They're being mistreated. Their children are being murdered. They're living with cries that are going out to God. And all of their life, they're going, where's God? So to have Moses step into the story and go, hey, by the way, God has sent me to you. They're not going to say, is his name Yahweh? What they want to know, and the question that's being asked in the language here is, who is this God that he's going to make any difference in our circumstances? Where was he when our homes were being confiscated? Where was he when our people were being enslaved and mistreated? Where was he when my infant son was murdered at Pharaoh's request? Oh, good of you to come and ask us to go on a three-day leave of absence, Moses. But who's this God? Haven't you wanted to ask God the same question? Oh, we would never say that out loud. But don't we ask the same question? Who is this God? Not whether his name is Jesus, not whether we call him the Holy Spirit, not whether we refer to him as the Father. Many of us have the same question. We talk and we sing songs and we gather together and you saw people raising their hands and going, you know, I love this. I am the God who rescues you. And we're going, who is this God in my circumstances? Where was God when my husband was abusing me and I was checked in to a secured facility? Where was God when we had to go stand in line at a food bank because we were unemployed and we couldn't feed our kids and it's the only way we could get another meal on the table? Where was God when my marriage was falling apart and I would pray and the tears would fall from my eyes? See, we ask the same question. We don't tell each other about the question. But Moses identified something that's true for all of us, that the need for worship is going to reset our perspective. God understood something. The people had lived with the silence of God for so long that they began to assume that God was no longer present in their life. Moses needed to know, God, don't send me into that. Don't send me into that story. If all I'm going to tell them, it's Yahweh, because they're going to go, we've heard that name. We haven't seen the power of that name. And so God says to Moses, here's my name. I am who I am. Now again, more. I love the language part of this. I am who I am. What does that mean? It really means I am, I always have been. And you could equally interpret to say I am and I will. I am who I am and I will do everything I have said I will. I am the God of the past. I am the God of their present. And I am the God of their future. Moses, when you go to meet with them, you let them know that I have never forgotten. I have never forsaken. I know exactly who they are. And you see, friends, when God was inviting Israel to go into worship, he was going to do something with Pharaoh. That's a whole other story. But worship is central to us because it resets our perspective of who God is. He gives us an opportunity to get above our circumstances and go, No matter what I'm going through in my life, there is still a God who loves me, who cares about me, who understands my circumstances. And though we feel his silence is deafening in our world, God says, I've never abandoned you and I've never forgotten you. So that's what worship does. That's why when we gather together, and I love coming together as a community, and we gather together in the room, and some of you, your hands are shot up, and you're just loving God, because in your world, your circumstances, you want to give that exuberant shout, but if you're in this room, and you're in the midst of depression, you're in the midst of heartache, and you're in the midst of pain, or you're watching online, and you're going through that, I don't expect you to stand up and begin to shout at the top of your lungs and go, you know, worthy is God, but I want your spirit to get the perspective of who God is. 
to allow his spirit to begin infuse life into you because one day, one day, your hands will go up. One day, your mouth will be loosed. And one day, you will shout with the rest in the room because God enables us to reset our perspective when we come together and worship. And Israel needed a change. They had lived through a season where God's silence was deafening. You know that little English idiom, absence makes the heart grow fonder? It wasn't true for Israel. And God knew they were going to need some alone time with God. Powerful outcome. Number two in your notes, just write this down. What does worship do for us? Worship restores my relationship with God. Once I get a better perspective of who God is and the name of God, I am who I am, I always was and I am right now and I always will be, then it begins to restore my relationship with God. And here's what's so crucial to understand. We, uh, we read the story and we overlay the story with our contemporary understanding with society and with culture. So we read about Israel being in Egypt, and God's going to rescue them out of Egypt. And we go, well, I know a little bit about Egypt, and I do. I've been there, traveled. A number of you went with us on a trip there. So I've seen some of the conditions, traveled through the land, and saw some of you know, society, and some of their, went into their museum, saw some of their history. And it's, it's a fascinating place to experience and to visit. So it's tempting to overlay my contemporary understanding of Egypt onto the biblical story. But just wait for a moment. This was a culture that had deified no less than 29 gods and goddesses. They had gods of the sun and gods of the water and gods of the sky and earth and nature and all kinds of forces had gods. They believed in this polytheistic approach to worship. So there was idolatry. It was steeped in this. It didn't matter where you went in ancient Egypt. Everything about it just spoke to the nature of their gods and the worship of their gods and their goddesses. So Israel, claiming to believe in a monotheistic, a one God only, living in the middle of this culture, you can begin to understand why it would be imperative for God to say, Moses, I need these people to get away from this. I need to get them out of the culture for a little bit so that we can restore relationship." We become so tainted, we don't even realize it. We become so tainted and conditioned by our culture and influenced by our culture. It doesn't take long, and you can see, just look back over the past generations and see how culture shifts and moves the way we live, even as followers of God. So God knew the imperative here was, I need to restore relationship with my people. I need to get them away from the culture. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're new to the story, people often wonder, you know, they talk about the the ten plagues. And they go, so what's the deal? So why the plagues that God chose? Like, did he just randomly one day go, frogs would be kind of interesting. Let's send frogs into Egypt and see if Pharaoh will let the people go. So again, if we read the story, we often go, okay, well, that's just a rather unique. Did you know that God selected the plagues because the plagues were, there's a correlation between the gods and goddesses of Egypt that were identified by those symbols? And what God was doing when the plagues were being sent in is he said, oh, you think your God that's symbolized by frogs is strong? Can I show you my supremacy? Show you my power? Oh, you think the gods of the locusts are strong? Can I show you my supremacy? See, the ten plagues weren't randomly identified by God. They were directly influential into Egyptian culture to go, you think your gods are powerful? Let me show you who's God over all creation. 
So for Israel, it was critical that God could get with Moses and get them out where he could spend time with them and restore relationship, to get them out of this multi-God and goddesses culture, to get away from the polytheistic nature of this culture, and to get them out of the abuse and the enslavement that they were experiencing. So in a worship retreat, what better way? So look how they introduce this to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter, or they're going to introduce it to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. Moses tells the leaders, and they would speak to Pharaoh these words, the Lord, the God of the, what's the word? Ooh, God of the Hebrews. The one God. The only God. The true God. So now, again, live in the story. God says, take the leaders, go into Pharaoh and go, listen, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews wants us, not your Egyptian gods, our God wants us to go and worship him. Can we have a three-day leave of absence to be able to do that? God is restoring relationship with... That's what worship does. Worship brings us into the presence of God where I can restore my relationship and I can experience God in the depths of my soul. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Here's what God speaks to his very own people in the middle of their, their suffering and their tragedy. He says these words, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt... I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. That's the nature of the God that we worship today. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He, is, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus offers us all of this in our life. Why did he do this? He is the God who has come down to what? Not only to rescue us, but to have a relationship with us. He wants to restore a relationship, introduce us to the Father because God is the God who sees and He hears and He cares and He is concerned and He is a God who responds to the cries of His people. And friends, when we worship, when we worship, we are awakened again to the mystery and the majesty and the awe of what it is to be in the presence of God. And God knew that His people had been through a season. It was a barren season for them. There was heartache, there was brokenness, but He knew that when we get together, and we begin to worship, and we truly understand, and we engage. And it's not just involuntary, but it's voluntary. God meets with his people. What did Jesus say? Wherever two or three gather in my name, he goes, I'll be right there with you. I'll be in your midst. Beautiful response that takes place when we worship. Number three, it's in your notes. Write this down. What's a potential outcome? Well, worship reminds me of the promises of God. When I worship, it reminds me that God has made promises, not just to me, but to you, to his people. God has made promises for all of us, and worship reminds me of those promises and that God is faithful. Now, I got a little question, because it's Interactive Participatory Church, and you were all really good with the breathing exercise. So you good for another little exercise? Okay, I'm not going to make you breathe, but I'm going to ask you a question. So if you're married, you know, be honest. If you're here with your parents, you know, or your mom or your dad or some friends, just think about the question for a minute. Do you have a really good memory? If you do, raise your hand. Just take a moment, think about that. Interesting. We got some work to do in the room, don't we? We have this very reluctant crowd. They're going like, if you're not sure you have a good memory, the next time you're in an argument with your spouse or your kids... Have you ever noticed how good our memory is when we're fighting? My memory's not so good when everything is working, but when Laura and I are in an argument, I always remember clear. She forgets all the details. I seem to remember everything. Isn't that the way it goes? 
And if you're arguing right now, trust me, you've got a new experience later on. Your memory is going to be really fired up. Human memory is amazing. We can pull in information. We can recall details and pictures and images, where we were, locations. All of this can be captured and brought into our memory. And yet sometimes we forget. We have this short-term memory loss. And it's true in our journey of faith that we sometimes forget the very presence and the power and the promise of God, that all that God has said that he will do. Why is that? Because when we're in the middle of our circumstances, we become overwhelmed with the immediacy of our need, and we forget about the sufficiency of our God. So we focus our attention on the immediacy of what I need to respond to and how I'm going to do that, and not that that's wrong, but we allow that to become the more powerful influence in our life than we do when it comes to this whole area of our ability to remember the very promises of what God has said. Do any of you remember how long Israel had been going through the sojourn and difficulty in Egypt? How many years? 400. So the Bible says that for 400 years you're going to sojourn through Egypt and then you're going to have this difficulty, you're going to go through this struggle. So little wonder that for them, they would go through a period where there'd be a little hazy about some of the promises of God, maybe selective memory loss. Why should we remember if God has abandoned us? So what does God do? He says to Moses, when you go into, Israel, when you go into Egypt, I want you to take him on a three-day retreat. Ask Pharaoh to let you out. Now, it would be interesting. Here's an interesting question. It would be interesting if they would have followed through on this. And there's a reason why the story progresses the way that it does. But God speaking into Moses, I want them to remember. I want them to remember the promises that I've made. Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your... What's the word up there? The God of your fathers. The God of your fathers. Remember what I said at the beginning? Who is this God? Moses anticipated that there was going to be a difficult moment that the elders of Israel would ask him, who is this God? Where is this God in my circumstances right now? And God says, I want you to go to them and say, the Lord, the God of your fathers. And he goes on to say this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he begins to enumerate their own history because sometimes we forget our history. And he takes them all the way back to Abraham because in Genesis 15, 13, if you're writing down notes, you can talk about this in your growth group. But in Genesis 15, 13, God actually spoke to Abraham and he said, oh, by the way, Abraham, I'm going to promise you that because of your faith, you will be counted as righteous. And all who practice faith will be counted as righteous. But there's going to be a little period of about 400 years where your people are going to sojourn through Egypt. They're going to be mistreated and enslaved. And he goes, but Abraham, I'm going to come and I'm going to take him to the promised land. They knew that story. Oral tradition was powerful in their culture. It was passed down generation to generation. But God says to Moses, the first thing you do when you get to the land of Egypt, you get Israel together and you get them into an opportunity for worship because I want to remind them of the promises of God that I am not just God Yahweh by a name that they think they know. I want them to remember that I am the God of their fathers. That means that I am their God. And then when they're going before Pharaoh, they'll remember that the God who spoke this promise to to Abraham is the God who will fulfill the promise for Israel. What a beautiful picture of how God steps into our world. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. It's in your notes. 
So again, to drive the point further home, God says to Moses, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you up from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I'll be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up from out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now this week, when I was getting ready for this message, I was going back through my notes, and I was just reading down through the different texts that I had outlined. This particular text was sitting on a piece of paper on my desk. And my eyes sort of fell on the text again, and I started to look at it. There were two words that were repetitive all the way through these two verses. I will. I will. I will. Five times in two verses, God says, I will. Notice this. If you're used to highlighting or you're writing your Bible, you might want to underline this. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will be your God. What is God doing? He goes, you remember the words of your fathers, but don't forget, I am your God too. And my promises are going to be fulfilled in your sight and in your presence. Friends, that's the kind of God that we serve. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. Come and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. You will learn from me. Jesus invites us into this most wonderful relationship where we don't have to wonder about the God of the past, but the I am God is the God of your story. Some of you, you're going through, your life is like just cruising right now. It's perfect. And we celebrate that. Good jobs, good home, everything is working, good family, good friendships. Some of you, if your truth is told, it's just hard sitting in a service like this. Pain is real. Might be a loss, disappointment, could just be going through a health challenge and you're going, I want this to be true for me. So can I, can I bring it all back together? God says, Moses, I, I need you to take Israel out and I need you to let them worship me because worship begins to respect, reset their perspective. It begins to restore our relationship and then it reminds them, it reminds them that my promises are sure and true. And I am the God who will fulfill every promise that I said and I made to them. That's my covenant with my people. Facebook is an amazing little thing, isn't it? Sometimes irritating, sometimes amazing. Now, many of you know that I'm not a regular Facebook updater because a lot of you follow me. And uh, I posted a new picture last week. Boy, did that ever gain some ground. People are like, whoa, Doug is still alive. Is that not incredible? A new picture of Doug and Laura. And so thank you for liking me and, you know, doing all of that kind of stuff. I'm still trying to figure Facebook out. But have you noticed on Facebook when you open up your app that they immediately pop up these pictures at the very top of the page? Does it do for you guys? Maybe it's just for me because I never use it often enough. They go, hey, dude, use your Facebook account a little more often. No, no, they, they bring these pictures up to the top of Facebook, and they say, do you remember this? There's a picture of a kilt. I don't know what that guy was thinking about in that picture. There was a picture of us with some friends over at Niagara-on-the-Lake. There was a picture of a Foods of the World event in the gym. And I was looking at these pictures, and I'm going, wow, what a great life we have. Yeah, we've had disappointment. We've gone through it. We've got a family member that's dying of cancer right now. But I looked at my Facebook account and I go, wow, what a great life I have. I've got a great church and I've got great friends and we've got great support and we've done great experiences. So I could zero my attention in and 
I could mourn and grieve together, and we do with a family member who's going through a real difficult time. Or I can pull back my perspective just a little bit and lift my eyes up to the God who loves me and go, God, I'm going to choose to remember there's more to my life than just this circumstance right now. And friends, remembering is an expression of worship that awakeneth to the wonder of God. And when we begin to think back and look over our past life, yeah, there's moments where the disappointment was there, but there was never a moment that God wasn't there. He's always there. And then I can look to my future, and I don't know how many days God has for me. Probably wants me to sell my motorbike so I can last a little longer. I don't know. But I can look to my future, and I can go, no matter where I go, God is with me until I go past 60 miles an hour. And then I think that's his opt-out right there. There's a, I think there's a clause in the Bible somewhere. But God is with me in this, and he's with you. So today, here's what I want to remind you of. Worship is both voluntary and involuntary. You were created for worship. That's how God made you. So I want you to awaken afresh. Even if your circumstances seem daunting and overwhelming, awaken to the wonder of God. Not about your posture. It's all about your spirit. And remember who God is. He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. Amen? Lord, this morning... May you, Holy Spirit, open all of our hearts and our minds, our bodies and our souls to the truth of this word. That the greatest thing we can ever do is love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it is to worship. That in my everyday, ordinary going about of all of my activities, to have you front and center in all I think and all I do and how I act. So I pray today for all of us. I pray for those that... Life is in a perfect place and they're just celebrating and enjoying. God, thank you for that. And I just celebrate with them. I also pray for those that are going through difficult times. Lord, would you, by your spirit, just remind them this is a remember day for us. May they remember the God who called them, the God who loves them, the God who is with them, and the God who will never forsake them. Make that true in our hearts and in our experiences, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks for watching today. Be sure to check out our other messages on this page. And you can also watch us live online every Sunday morning at 1010 a.m. Don't forget, share your story or send us a prayer request by emailing info at porticocanada.ca. You can also stay connected by liking our Facebook page or following us on Twitter at PorticoCC. 